All right, well, if you guys want to turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, uh, that's where we're going to be today. And uh, while you're turning there, I just want to continue the trend of going before the Lord in prayer. God, we've been singing to you. We've been fellowshipping with one another. We've, we've been um, praying for a, a, a brother, uh, one who is precious in your sight. We, we've, just, we've been worshiping in different ways in this gathering. We want to continue to worship now, God, as we submit ourselves under the authority of the word of God, your word. We want to submit ourselves to your authority and to your direction. And to, we, we want to ask you now, God, would you speak? We open up our ears and we open up our hearts. God, would you speak to us? Would you say to us uniquely through your spirit what we need to hear? God, would, would you uh, speak very uniquely to each person how they are to hear, hear this word? Uh, there are... There are many times when I feel like a man of few words. I don't feel like talking sometimes. But God, I pray you would speak. I pray that you would fill up the air with words uh, from your spirit to just speak so clearly and deeply to your people today. And I pray that uh, uh, it would stick and that fruit would be born. And that in this valley, um, the fruit would be that more would come to you and that you would be glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So Hebrews chapter 10, continuing our series through the book of Hebrews. Um, we are in a unique point right now because we're, there's like a turning point now where the author is coming to a close on how he's just been hitting over and over and over why Jesus is better, and then from here, like starting next week, it's going to be like application heavy, and there's going to be a lot of exhortations and a lot of um, direct, like, this is what you need to do. But for now, we're in this place of like just making this argument of like why Jesus is better than the old covenant sacrificial system. You guys seen the uh, new Mission Impossible um, trailer? There's a Mission Impossible 7 now. Yeah, I know. It's called Mission Impossible 7 Dead Reckoning. That's what it's called. It's like, I have to say it that way, Dead Reckoning. Um, the one, some of the lines in the trailer says, Ethan, this mission of yours is going to cost you dearly. That's one of them. And another one is, um, what is your objective? What is your ultimate objective? objective. It's like there's a mission, and in these movies, there's like this colossal problem, right? And there's like only one way to solve it. And there's like only one set of variables that will make it possible for this thing to happen. There's like only one man qualified for the job, and there's only one shot to get it done. And, and in this one shot, you need 100% accuracy and this thing needs to be 100% completed or else it's 100% worthless. And it reminds me 
of a colossal, the ultimate colossal problem that we have as human beings. We have a problem of that though we were made in the image of God, though we were made uniquely as humans to reflect God's character and enjoy God and worship God, we actually have all turned aside and we have all turned to our own way and we have corrupted ourselves and we have defiled ourselves and we have cut ourselves off from our very maker who made us to enjoy him. Colossal problem, right? This is the problem that, that us as Christians, we know and that the world around us, they feel it, but they don't know it. They need us to explain it to them. But nonetheless, it is a colossal problem and it reminds us that Christ and the mission that he accomplished, this impossible mission, is that one man for the job. With this colossal problem, there is a perfectly planned mission. There is a set of variables that will work. There is one shot, and that set of variables is that Jesus had to be fully God and fully man. The perfect mission was the cross. The 100% accuracy was that he was sinless. When he offered his one body, there was one shot, one life. And he was 100% accurate with that one life. And he accomplished 100% what he set out to accomplish. And that is what our passage is going to talk about. Jesus Christ accomplishes what the old covenant could not. And he shows them over and over and over the meaninglessness and the futility of these offerings, of these sacrifices over and over that can't accomplish this a colossal mission. So let's read chapter 10, verses 1 through 18. Let's just read the whole thing. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities. Now I want you to, I'm going to stop for a second. I want you to watch for the contrast of the futility of the offerings of the old covenant sacrificial system. Listen for the language in contrast to the completion of Christ's work. Now watch for it. Um. We'll start over. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they not uh, have ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having once been cleansed, would no longer have any consciousness of sins? But in these sacrifices, the old covenant sacrifices, there is a reminder of sins every year. For it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Consequently, this is the contrast, when Christ came into the world, he said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, 
I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus once for all. Verse 11. And every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices which can never take away sins. But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Verse 15. And the Holy Spirit also bears witness to us. For after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them, after those days, declares the Lord, I will put my laws in their hearts. I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, I will remember their sins and their lawless deeds no more. Where there is forgiveness of these, there is no longer any offering for sin. Wow. So like I said, he's coming to a conclusion. Now, next week, it's going to be, if you think that like these sermons are sounding the same every week, it's because he, he just keeps on hitting the same idea. But, and so he's drawing it to a close. This is his, almost his final argument here. And you can tell that he's hitting it hard. He's hitting this comparison really hard. That you hear this language of futility repeated over and over and over every year daily, repeated sacrifices, and then the, the failure to accomplish can never perfect, can never take away sins. These are very intentional words of the author. But as he draws to this conclusion, he's been saying over and over that Jesus is better. Jesus is better than the old covenant sacrificial system. He makes very clear why. And in verse 14, I think this is really his, like, like where he sums it up the best. And he, like, hits it the hardest with what he's trying to say. Look at verse, verse 14. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. This has two parts. Final sanctification in the end. And progressive sanctification, which is our process of becoming like Jesus. It, this says that all that needed to be done to make both of those happen has been accomplished. He did it through one offering of himself. The, the penalty of sin, the power of sin, the presence of sin, all that needed for the, all of that to be removed has been accomplished in Jesus. Now, the presence of sin is still here, but what needed to be accomplished so that it can be removed has been done in the past. So, I want you to notice, look at the words of the futility language in verses 1 through 4. Verses 1 through 4 says, for since the law has but a shadow of good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, 
this phrase, it can never, by the same sacrifices that are continually offered every year, make perfect those who draw near. Otherwise, would they have not been, uh, been uh, ceased to be offered since the worshipers, having been once cleansed, would no longer have any conscience of sins. But these sacrifices are a reminder of sins every year. Futility. It reminds me of the futility in work that was introduced at the fall. It was introduced when God responded to Adam in Genesis chapter 3. You can go there if you want to. Let's jump there real quick. If not, that's fine. I'll read it to you. God says this to Adam. Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for from the dust, or you are dust, and to the dust you shall return. Notice the futility of that even though you're eating bread, you're only doing it through sweat and pain. And notice that though you start off somewhere, you're actually returning right back where you came. You're, fr you're from the dust, and you're going to go right back to the dust. That's futility. So... What, what does futility produce? It, it produces just weariness, right? I mean, we're, we're all just weary from futility all the time. It's like when you clean something up. If, if you have kids, you, you know this so well. Like, like I just cleaned that, and, and it's dirty again or, or whatever it may be. And it's just like we all experience it. Or I just finished this project, and it's ruined, you know, or um, we all know it very well, this idea of futility. And, and I think the idea is this, that apart from God, even our work of trying to save ourselves is futile. Even our work of trying to sanctify ourselves is futile. You're going to end up in the same place that you were like when you set out on a journey and you're like, you're like, you know, I, I know where I'm going. I've got a compass or whatever. And an hour later, you're right back where you started. It's like that kind of futility that the author of Hebrews is trying to get us to, 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 to see. That the old covenant sacrifices, is just get, they're just going to bring you right back to where you were. They're not going to actually fix anything. They're not going to accomplish this colossal mission that needs to be accomplished. And it's the same not just for the sacrificial system, you guys, but anything, anything that, that God never designed to set you apart, to perfect you, as, as the author calls it, to forgive you of your sins, to, to take your sins away, and to make you, to put you into this place where you're acceptable to God, where you're able to enter into the presence of God. So it's very clear this language of futility that he uses. Um, in contrast, the author shows that Jesus reverses the curse. 
that, that Jesus um, gets us home, so to speak. And instead of ending up in the same place, he actually gets us to where we need to be. That he accomplishes the, mi- the mission. That he is better. And the next part, this is, this is really cool. Um, you guys ever uh, just like had this thought? Like, what if we could go back in time and, and just like peek into or listen in on a conversation between the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit when they're planning out the redemption, our redemption? Have you ever just had that thought? Like, I wonder what that conversation sounded like. You guys ever wondered that? Am I the only one? I mean, think about it now. Like, what would it be like to just, like, almost like a little kid, like, put your, put your ear to the door and just listen in on their, on their conversation? Well, that's basically what we get to do in these next verses. So look at verses 5 through 7. This points out the fact that... Um, this, goes, this is the contrast where we see that though the old covenant couldn't do it, Jesus does it. But even more, that, even more than that, this mission was planned out before the foundation of the world, before Jesus came into the world. So look at um, verse 5. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said... Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. Who's he quoting here? Anybody know who he's quoting? He's quoting a psalm. He's quoting David. These are David's words. These are actually lyrics to a song that David wrote. It's from, it's from Psalm 40. And what's interesting is that the author borrows David's words, a, a lyrics to a song, that's, it's, it's a messianic psalm, and he actually says, when Christ came into the world, who said? He said. So he's, he's borrowing David's, word, David's words, and he's saying, Christ said this when he came into the world. So we can read this and go, Jesus said, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired. Who? The Father. So Jesus talking to the Father saying, sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. How many bodies? One body. So, and then he continues, in burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. So that's interesting. What does that tell us? That these repeated bodies of these animals were never meant. They were, the, the purpose was never for this accomplishment of taking away our sins. God never took pleasure in it. He knew that there was something else There was something more that was going to come, and there was a will. Look, it says in verse 7, Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will. That speaks of a plan. So before the foundation of the world, you have Jesus and the Father talking, and and they're, they're formulating a plan to accomplish this mission. 
And this is the conversation that they have. Jesus said, I'm going to come and do your will. What's his will? His will would be that Jesus would be the replacement of this shadow. So as in the very beginning, it said that there's a shadow. The law is, 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 has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form. So it's like, you know, you have a, a person and then you have a shadow. The shadow points to the person. It's the same thing that the law does. It is, but it was always meant to do that. That's what he's pointing out. And look at verse 8. When he said above, you have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings, these are offered according to the law. Then he added, behold, I have come to do your will. Listen, he does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, when Jesus, Jesus said, okay, I'm going to do this, I'm going to go, Listen to what it accomplished. We have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Once for all time. Not repeatedly like the contrast of the old covenant, once. You know, when you read the Bible, you can't hear emphasis. But you know what you can hear? repeated things. So when you read the Bible and you see something that's repeated over and over and over, that's basically if it was a speaker, he would be saying it louder, you know? So like the, the repetition is him like increasing his volume, increasing his emphasis. So Psalm 40, as he borrows the words of David, he's clearly communicating that this plan of redemption was before the foundation of the world. So, but there's more contrast between the futility of the old covenant sacrificial system and the superiority of Christ. If you look at verse 11, and every priest stands daily at his service, offering repeatedly the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins, but... When Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. And here again, for by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. Is he making his point, you think? How well do you think he's making his point? I think, I think he's making a pretty good argument by his rep repetition and his clear contrasts. And notice that uh, the contrast of the repeated sacrifices and the single sacrifice, but also the fact that the priests are standing. They're going in there every day and they're standing because their work is, in, is never done. And then you see the contrast with Christ sits because the work is done. But there's more to this. There's more to this problem, this colossal problem that we have. And, and as he continues to go on, he, begin, he continues to unfold what it is that needs to be fixed. So I want you to look back at verse 1 and 2 again. And I want you to notice 
who is it that needs to be cleansed and who is it that needs to be perfected, as he's called it. All right, let's look at it one more time. For since the law has but a shadow of the good things to come instead of the true form of these realities, it can never by the same sacrifices that are continually offered everywhere, every year make perfect who? Those who draw near. Okay, let's keep going. Otherwise, would they not have not ceased to be offered since the who? The worshipers. I think, I think there, there's something that we could easily miss here. It's, it's not that, um, it's not the, 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 what, what accomplished, the mission that was accomplished here wasn't just that sinners were forgiven. It wasn't that he's producing forgiven sinners. It's that he's producing forgiven worshipers. Do you get that the problem here isn't just that there are sinners that need to be cleansed and forgiven. The problem is you have worshipers coming, trying to give offerings, but they're not cleansed. And, and, and what they're giving is not setting them apart. It's not cleansing them. It's not forgiving them. So he doesn't just produce and, and create forgiven sinners. He creates forgiven worshipers. He sees their problem as a worship problem. Just as God did throughout the Old Testament. He always saw their problem as a worship problem. As they're worshiping idols. They're worshiping the Baals. They're committing spiritual adultery against him. But he continues to go deeper as we uh, approach verses 15 through 18. We see that um, there's something deeper that needs to happen. If we're going to become true worshipers, something else needs to happen. We don't just need our sins forgiven. We need something more. Because though the, 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 the way has been open for us, now consider this, okay, our sins have defiled us, which means we can't go in, we can't enter in, right? That, that's one of the problems that he solves by removing our guilt, but there's another problem that, that needs solved other than that. It's that even if the way is completely open to us and we are completely forgiven and washed, the problem is, is that we actually still don't want to go in. We don't need just to be forgiven. We need to be changed. We need to be changed from the inside out. We need our heart affected by this work, this accomplished work. So as he continues on, look at verse 15. You see, this is the aspect that he addresses. The Holy Spirit also bears witness to us after saying, this is the covenant that I will make with them after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. I think we need to stop and consider something. So as we, as we think through the fact that we think through this idea that like we have these sin stains on us, right? We need those removed. We need to stop and we need to be honest about the fact that like how those stains got there. 
Because it's not just, you know, like, like the, we step, accidentally stepped in a puddle, right? It's, it's not like we, we accidentally, like, as we we're eating, we, like, dropped some food on our shirt, and we're like, whoops. We have to come back to the definition of sin. Sin is what we do when, when our heart is not satisfied in God. So as we consider the deeper problem that we have that needs to be solved, we need a want to. We need it in our heart to even want to enter into his presence and to worship him. So we need more than just a a cleared record. We need a new heart. We need to be changed. And so this, this is so awesome that we have this promise. Do you guys realize that when you see the words, I will, when God says, I will, perk up. Because you can hang your entire life on it. Pay attention. What is it that he is saying that he will do, that he is promising that he will do in the new covenant? And why it's better than the old covenant. He says, I will make a covenant with them. Notice he's not saying, I'm going to invite them to join me in a covenant. He says, I'm making a covenant with them. After those days, declares the Lord. And then what, what is he promising? I will put my laws on their hearts and write them on their minds. Isn't that what we need? We need this transformation. We need to change our idea about who God is and what God has required from us. And we need to look at it completely different with new eyes. We need to love what he loves. We need to hate what he hates. And I actually wrote down this, this, uh, this note here after hearing that song that was introduced. I just want to be like Jesus. Because that's, that's what this is. This, um, the law on our heart, the, the, the law, God's law and God's requirements and God's righteousness on our heart. That, that we want it like he does, that we love it like he does, that's Jesus. And so what basically is what he's saying is that, like, okay, what, what is this idea of loving what he loves and following after his commands like Jesus? That's what it means to be a Christian. Little Christs, right? So, like, what is going to produce a Christian? This promise Produce a Christian, produces a Christian. This promise that God's saying, I will do this. I'm going to produce this thing in you where you want what I want. You love what I love. You want to enter into my presence. You want me. You want more of me and less of you. That's what Christ accomplishes, not what we accomplish. It is based on his promises. And what do you do with the promise of God? You put your faith in it. You put your trust in it. What does it say about Christians? That we walk by what, not by sight? We walk by faith, not by sight. You can't walk by faith without a promise. And this promise may be the very first promise that a Christian ever believes. God, you promised to give me a new heart. 
You promised to give me what I need to love you and to follow you and to obey you and to want what you want and love what you love and love righteousness and hate wickedness. You promised that you would put this in me. So as we need to stop and realize that it's not just that worship needs to be made possible, worship needs to be desirable to us. It's not just that we need the way open so that we can enter. We need a new heart to want to enter. And that is what the new covenant produces. Now, this should change the way we think about everything in Christianity. Because God, in the new covenant, God never asks you to do something that he doesn't give you the ability to carry out. This has changed the way I look at parenting. When you tell your kids, do this, obey, here's a rule or whatever, here's a law, here's, the, here's a rule of the house, are you giving them the ability to carry that out? Because that's new covenant. That's the new covenant way right there. That's what God does. He says, obey my commands. But I'm going to put it in you to obey my commands. Love what I love. Love holiness and hate, hate evil but I'm going to put it in you to love holiness and hate evil. It's the new covenant. It's the better way that God introduces. It's so good. It's such good news. As he uh, says this, he's doing it again. As he last quoted Psalm 40, he uses David's, David's words. I'm like, why do you keep saying that? David's, is, David's words. And he, 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 he says, this is Jesus talking, and now he's using Jeremiah's words in Jeremiah 31, and now he's saying that the Holy Spirit's talking. He says, the Holy Spirit bears witness to us when he says this. I think he's trying to make a point. He's, he's trying to say, look, these aren't just the words of a prophet. These are the words of the Holy Spirit through a prophet. He's trying to add more punch to this. This is a promise of God. So what? So, so what do, why is this important to us? So again, as I said, that we're coming to a close on this whole argument that Jesus is better than Moses and he's better than angels and he's better than the old covenant and he's better than the sacrifices. So he's coming to, to a close there. But guess how much time he has spent on this idea that Jesus is better? Like over 10, almost full 10 chapters. What does that tell you about, number one, God's kindness and patience with these Hebrews? Now, he could have just said, you guys, Jesus is better. Now, straight to the application. This is what I want you to do. I mean, the, the patience and the kindness of God that he would take ten and a half chapters or, 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 or you know, about ten chapters and just be patient and, and just walk through, like, this is why he's better. This is why, in this way, using this illustration over and over again. I think it speaks to God's kindness. I think it speaks to his patience with us. But I think it also speaks to his emphasis. You know, when God emphasizes something, 
we should emphasize it too. A lot of times that um, in Christian circles, we find something that we're really interested in. Or we find one thing that we're really, like, we all like to do. Or we find similar, similar um, personality traits and we kind of congregate in, in that way. And, but, but 10 chapters of that Jesus is better is quite, the bit, quite a bit of a, an, an emphasis that God wants to, to communicate to us. That if that's God's emphasis, that should be our emphasis. That should be what consumes our conversation and makes it is the thing that we gather around and centralize. But there's another thing that I think that is, is important here. And something that I think that we're missing that I don't think we realize. I know for me, when I read this, there's a lot that falls flat. And maybe you're like me. I'm guessing you're like me because when I read something like this and I'm reading about the sacrificial system and I'm reading about Jesus as the high priest, a lot of it's fallen flat and I don't just, I just don't quite get it. And it's not really doing a lot in me. And, and I was thinking this week as to why that is. And, and I think we need to recognize that we have a problem when we read a, a passage like this. And I think our problem is, is that we don't share the paradigm that the Old Testament saints did. You know what I mean? You know what I mean by that? They had to offer sacrifices for their sin. They knew because of their lifestyle, because of the way that God set up the Old Covenant. This is the benefit of the Old Covenant system. They had to offer and, and, and kill and watch blood fall to the ground when they thought about their sin. They knew because of the way that they were brought up. It, their paradigm was that defiled sinners don't enter into the presence of God. As they are. They just don't. They knew it. That was their paradigm. I think if we're honest, that's not our paradigm in our culture, you guys. Now, our paradigm is, uh, is, is totally on its head. We assume that God needs to answer to us, right? Like when I get to heaven, you know, I'm going to ask God this question and that question, and he's going to have to answer to me. That is the pervasive paradigm that we swim in. Now, that may not be your personal paradigm, but it is the, it is the paradigm that we swim in as a culture, and I think we need to realize that, that when we come to a passage like this, and it's like, your sins are forgiven, you're like, yeah, that's, that's, that's me. I'm being honest. That's, that's my, my failure to really get it, and if I don't stop and realize that I need to saturate myself in this to get God's paradigm, to adopt it, to make it mine. I need God's paradigm to be my paradigm. We ask questions like, how can a loving God send anyone to hell? That's not the, that's not the biggest dilemma that the Bible presents. The biggest dilemma that the Bible presents is that how can a just and holy God forgive anyone? That's the dilemma of the Bible. And so if you come to reading the Bible with that paradigm, you're going to go, 
yeah, I'm eager and I'm ready. I need this forgiveness. I need this good news for a soul that is condemned and defiled and broken and left out of the presence of God. So I think that that is an important aspect that we need to just stop and go, okay, if I'm honest, I need a, a, a new set of eyes when I read this. You know, I want to see, when I, when, I, when I hear of talk about my sin, I want to feel that it's, it's audacious. Like, how could I? How could I sin against such a holy and good and kind God? That's what I want to feel. Because that's the reality. And when I feel that way, then I see the love of Jesus and I'm like, whoa, that's amazing. How could he love a wretch like me? When you see, you see grace as for what it really is. It's undeserved because you know what you deserved. If you know that, you're like, oh, wow, this is shocking. This is amazing. Grace was supposed to be seen as amazing. When if you stopped feeling that, that grace is amazing to you, you just slow down and go, all right, I've got the wrong paradigm here. I need, I need, to, I need to be washed. I need my mind to be transformed. I want the audacity of sin to make me see the love of Jesus as just mind-bogglingly good. So what do we do with this? So like that, that was, I think, why it's important. But like what is like, okay, we can start to like take some of this home. So there are no imperatives in this passage. There's nothing in this passage of scripture that we just read that's like, do this now. There's no uh, specific application that it gives us. So I could give you some. I could think of some to give you. But I, I, I was thinking about, all right, what, to answer that question, what do we have here to kind of like take home with us? And I think it's just the fact that we need to realize that we're we need to see each other as forgiven worshipers. We need to see ourselves as recipients of grace. We need to draw near, not because we think drawing near or coming to church or reading our Bibles or praying, that not because we think that any of that actually earns our way in or does anything to contribute to this colossal mission that needs to be accomplished, that it's done, and we come in response to it being done. We don't come in response to thinking that it contributes. We come because it's done. That is the distinctive of the Christian faith. It's a done religion. It doesn't call you to work in hopes that you'll enter in and you'll be accepted one day. Oh, I just feel so bad for some of these you know, Mormons and Jehovah's Witnesses and uh, Muslims, like they, they really just hope that they'll be accepted because of their works. I had a conversation with a Jehovah's Witness one time and I said, if you died today and you entered into God's presence and he asked you, why should I let you in? What's your answer? And he said, well, you know, I, uh, I, I was really genuine 
And I just tried really hard, and, uh, and I'm like, you're trusting in your own righteousness, aren't you? No, 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 I'm not. No, uh, salvation's by grace. No, of course. But no, I just think that uh, he'll just know that I was genuine. He'll just know that I, I um, you know, I did my best. No, that's so sad. Well, our answer needs to be so abundantly clear. Why should I let you in? Because of the blood of Jesus was shed for me. I didn't deserve that. I deserved judgment. And the one who stands in my place and died in my place and rose again in my place, I'm pointing to him. I'm with him, not me. I don't bring any, anything to this that contributes. So I'm just going to give you two things, and these aren't going to be quick. So hopefully we have a little bit, little bit of time, 13 seconds. Um, so two things, come to God as a forgiven worshiper, and two, take the message of the cross, which is the forgiveness of sins, to a world that is perishing. Because that, this is the central message of the apostles that Jesus gave the apostles, you guys. Forgiveness of sins in Jesus' name. Do you see yourself as primarily a worshiper? Do you see the deficiencies in you as being a worship deficiency? When you go home, do you see yourself as a worshiper in your home, in your workplace? A worshiper in your workplace. And now, do you see yourself as a forgiven worshiper when you go into those places? I'm going to do something different. It might be a little strange, but I think it's going to be good. Um, as I was preparing this, I, I began to get a strong impression that some of you, maybe many of you, and maybe all of you, need to hear the declaration of the words, your sins are forgiven. In Jesus' name. I mean, there are some of you that are carrying some weight, some heavier than others. I know I do. Do your sins haunt you? Do they come up? Do they, do they come up in your mind? Does the accuser come to you and say, you have no right to be here? You need to leave the presence of God because your sins defile you. Uh-uh not in the gospel, not those who believe in Jesus. There's a different story now. He's flipped the script. Now it's like, yeah, I was a sinner, but I've been made a saint. So let's do this. Can I have you close your eyes? Can I just have you, you all close your eyes? And some of you need to hear some specific sins that you have been forgiven for. And I have you close your eyes because I really want you to just turn it into a prayer like, God, make this real to me. Okay. Since you call Jesus your lamb that was slain once for all time to take away your sins, 
these sins are forgiven by God and removed, never to be held against you again. So when you coveted, when you were jealous or envious, when you were malicious, when you entertained murderous thoughts, when you stirred up strife, when you lied and deceived someone, when you gossiped about someone, when you slandered someone, when you even felt hatred for God, when you were filled with self-importance and boastful, you thought up an evil idea, you were disobedient to your parents, you chose foolishness over wisdom, when you were faithless and didn't believe that God was good, when you were heartless and didn't care, when you were pitiless and compassionless, when you did those things, those sins are forgiven. And the blood of Jesus washes them away and he takes them away as it says in the passage that nothing else could take these away. I'm going to continue on. Your sexual immorality is forgiven. Your idolatry is forgiven. Your adultery is forgiven. Homosexuality, forgiven. Laziness, theft, greed, drunkenness, forgiven. Abortion, forgiven. Abuse, forgiven. You can open your eyes. Um, the scripture says, such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified. You were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. So we can make that declaration that we are washed today, that we're sanctified, we're justified. This should be the thing that we rejoice in the most as Christians now, there's a lot of things to be happy about and to rejoice in. You know, when someone asks you, how are you doing today? I love the answer, I'm better than I deserve. I love it, and I forget it. And there's, I have one good friend that answers that, that, that way, and it's just such a good reminder. But Jesus says this in Luke 10, 20. He says, nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you. And that sounds pretty exciting, that that. I have authority over spirits? Sweet. He's like, don't rejoice in that. Rejoice in this, that your names are written in heaven. So let this be an anchor for you. Let it be an anchor for you, for you that when you're in pain and when you're in confusion and when you're in prosperity and success, let all of it Bring to mind the fact that you are, uh, your, your sins are forgiven you. So when you're in pain, you can know, like, I'm delivered from eternal torment because of my sins. And when you're in confusion, you could be like, well, I don't know about all this stuff, but I know this. My name is written in heaven. <laughs> and in prosperity, you can be like, well, I'm not going to hang on to it too tight because I know I can't take it with me when I go into the presence of Jesus because my sins are forgiven. And in success, say with the Apostle Paul, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't boast in anything. 
Your accomplishments mean nothing in light of the accomplishment of Jesus Christ. So number two, this is the central message of the apostles, you guys. This is the central message that, that Jesus gave to his people. Be like, he's like, go and make disciples. And how are they to do that? They're going to take a message with them. And what's the message? Primarily, it was the forgiveness of sins in Jesus. So like we as Christians, we go out and, and we present the gospel in, in a lot of ways. And sometimes we even say, well, I shared the gospel with them. I would say that if you're not mentioning the forgiveness of sins, I would question whether you actually shared the gospel or not. So I'm going to read to you the words of the apostles as they went out and they preached the gospel. I want you to see this, how they repeated over and over this phrase. Now watch. Say with, the, the, uh, with Peter in Acts 2. He said this, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of the Lord Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The apostles say with the apostles in Acts 3, Repent, therefore, and turn back, that your sins may be blotted out. Acts 5, The God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. God exalted him at his right hand as a leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. Acts 10, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Acts 13, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. And this is really cool. We get a little bit of insight that when Jesus first called uh, Paul, when he was Saul, he's like, I'm going to commission you. You're going to be my apostle, and here's my message to you. This is, this is the apostle Paul recording down Jesus' words to him when Jesus first called him, okay? He says this, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting, but rise and stand upon your feet, for I have appeared to you for this purpose, to appoint you as a servant and witness to the things in which you have seen me and to those in which I will appear to you. And this is, this is his mission, delivering you from your people and from the Gentiles, to whom I am sending you. Sorry, this is the mission. To open their eyes so that they may turn from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God and that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. That's what, the, that's what Jesus gave to the Apostle Paul. And that's why in 1 Corinthians, and I'll, and I'll close here because I know we're going all over. I'll close here. That's why the Apostle Paul said this in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, in conclusion, and... Jeremy, are you able to close us in a, in a, in a song, man? Um, so in conclusion, may we be led away from the futility of the things that cannot take away our sins, and may we walk out of here rejoicing and worshiping and proclaiming 
this one message, this one accomplished mission that was impossible by man, but nothing is impossible with God. And it's so simple, right? Like those of us who have grown up in the church, and I didn't, but I've been in church for long enough to know that like this message can become just like so background. And it's not, it's central for us. So we can worship. So um, yeah, let's just, let's sing one more song uh, of worship in response to this good news.